Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. So excited to have you with us for another great show today. Before I get to our guest, I want to talk to you about Two Betty's. So Two Betty's is a brand new snack food company that only uses natural ingredients and no refined sugars, which is really important as you think about your diet. Uh, I like to eat their maple cinnamon rounds. They almost look like two donuts, and I have a pack of two, usually with a hard-boiled egg, in the morning when I wake up. I'm busy. I got two little kids at home, so my mornings can be a little bit hectic. So to have these packaged really simply and cleanly, and I can grab them, eat them with a hard-boiled egg, wash them down with some green tea, it really gets me to start my day right. But you can also eat these for a snack. My son, who's two years old, thinks that they're donuts. We call them donuts in our house, and he loves eating them during his day. So you can try them for yourself. They're actually going to offer a 15% discount uh, on your first order. So if you go over to twobetties.com, that's the number two and the word betties.com, you can use the promo intentional and you will save 15% off your first order. So go ahead and check them out. Uh, You'll be glad you did and so will your body. We also are excited to have launched our Patreon homepage. We want to thank all the people that have supported us through the Patreon homepage thus far. And hopefully you can go over there and support us as well. So it's just patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And you can support us with a $2 a month donation, $5 a month donation. And if you donate $10 a month, we are actually going to give you a shout out on the podcast, which we are going to do our first one right now. So Tim Ogden has been a listener of the podcast, and we're really fortunate to have a relationship with Tim. Uh, He's a great guy and has been a big supporter of my business, but also of the podcast. And Tim works for a company called Blue Ivy Partners. And what they do is they work with early stage product companies in security, big data, and networking to help them match their products with federal customers who then innovate because they have urgent missions. So they partner with companies like Carbon Black, Corelight, and Data Robot. You can follow them on Twitter at Blue Ivy Partners and give them a follow. Uh, reach out to Tim. Uh, Tim has been great to me in the podcast. And Tim, thank you so much for supporting us over on Patreon. If you want to hear your name or your company sponsored in our podcast, feel free to go over to Patreon and then I'll connect with you about how we can promote your business or yourself. But without further ado, I'm so excited to present our next guest. And so we will cue the music, and here we go. And during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. thing you got to remember is you're transferring energy and whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have you are listening to intentional performers with brian levinson where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self 
As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. This podcast aims to have conversations with people who are setting their mind intentionally for preparation and for performance so that they can be at their best. And today, we chat with John Gordon. If you don't know about John, he is a best-selling author, he's a keynote speaker, he's written 15 books, and one of them, The Energy Bus, which is the one that I know about, and that's how I found out about John, has sold over a million copies. So he's written a bunch of different books, and we'll get into his books in a little bit, Uh, and he's also talked to a number of Fortune 500 companies, professional and college sports teams, school districts, hospitals, nonprofits. He's really spoken to a bunch of different people, and he tries to inspire, which he will get into in this conversation, and help them understand how to develop culture, how to develop leadership, and he's really been at the forefront of developing environments and culture and leadership in organizations. He's also been featured on the Today Show, CNN, CNNBC, the Golf Channel, Fox, a number of different TV shows, magazines, newspapers. Uh, His clients have also included the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Atlanta Falcons, Campbell Soup, Dell Publix. Uh, He's worked with the Miami Heat, the LA Clippers, Pittsburgh Pirates, so a number of different sports, a number of different organizations. And he's been in the weeds with some of the best leaders in the world and some of the best organizations in the world as he consults and tries to help them find their way and develop processes and systems that can help them develop their people to be their best self. This conversation, we get into grit. We get into what are his routines? What does he do intentionally to set his mind? We get into spirituality, which is a big part of John's framework. And he will talk a lot about how that has impacted the way that he sees the world. He also will talk about connection. So he believes that connection is extremely important, especially as it relates to grit and culture and environment and how we develop mental toughness. So he really values connection, and that's a big theme that we will get into. We also will talk about John's writing style. He wrote his books all under four weeks. The Energy Bus, which I mentioned earlier, took three and a half weeks for him to write. And then he went through a process of rejection that he had to overcome to get it out to the masses. And it certainly is out in the masses now. We're going to talk about some of the leaders that he has worked with. People like Dabo Sweeney, Dave Roberts, Buzz Williams, some of the best coaches in the sports world he's been able to interact with. So John is a special human being because he's real, he's humble, he's authentic, and he's constantly searching for truth. So that's a big conversation uh, and a big theme that we discuss in this conversation. So I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with John. And when you do, if you could share it with whoever you can, if you can email some friends the conversation, uh, put it out on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever it is that you can help us grow. I believe that conversations like this help people. So that's why we're doing this podcast. And I know that that mission aligns with John's mission of trying to impact people, trying to inspire people and help them be their best self and, and help them strive for greatness and whatever it is that they want to accomplish in this world. So I know you're going to love this conversation. And without further ado, I present to you, John Gordon. John, thank you so much for giving me the time. I'm a stranger. I've reached out to you. I know your time is valuable and precious, and I'm sure a lot of people reach out to you. So for you to come on with a stranger just means a lot to me. So I'm excited to riff on some of this stuff and chat with you. Uh, And one of the first things I wanted to dive into with you is, is the concept of grit. 
And I know I've listened to you talk. I've heard you talk about grit. And obviously, I think a lot of people that are listening to this conversation have heard about Angela Duckworth's framework on grit, her book on grit, her TED Talk on grit. And it seems like everywhere I go now, people are talking about this four-letter word. And it's a different four-letter word than a lot of coaches use. Um, but I know you've talked, <laughs> <laughs> you've talked a lot about team grit. And so... Um, I don't know where you're at with Team Grit, and I don't know how you think about Team Grit, but I would love to hear with where you're at with that and how you think about Team Grit. Well, first, let's start with Grit, and Angela Duckworth's research has been awesome. I'm so glad she brought Grit into the into the uh, public arena. First and foremost, Grit is the number one predictor and factor of success. It's not talent, not title, not wealth, not good looks. It's Grit. And what is Grit? I believe it's the ability to work hard for a long period of time to persevere, to overcome, to keep moving forward in the face of adversity, failure, rejections, and obstacles. But, you know, life knocks you down, and grit says, okay, get up, keep moving forward. So grit drives us, but I often think, okay, let's go under the curtain, under the hood, what drives grit, right? Grit drives us, what drives grit? What is grit really made of? Had a great conversation with Angela, and again, I hadn't read her book at the time, and I believed it was a vision. Where are we going? I believe it's optimism and belief and faith for the journey. That drives grit because you have faith, because you believe, you keep moving forward. It's also love. If you don't love it, you'll never be great at it. Love is the ultimate driver of grit. I am convinced. So love of people, love of what you're doing, love of your craft. That's why you keep working hard through all the adversity and all the challenges. So if you didn't have that love and you hit an obstacle, we didn't have a vision of where you're going and you face a setback and you hit that 20th mile where most people quit the marathon, you're just going to give up. So I think that there are these drivers that drive grit that are really important. So we can't just say grit and not talk about the things that really drive grit in the first place. I think that's where we really get into what's important when you talk about that. And um, I also believe grit is not something we develop. We we're hearing more and more like developing grit. No, no, you already have grit. You already have, you're born with it. It's something that is inside you. So it's not something that we develop. I believe we bring it out. I believe we draw it out within you. Life often reveals it. Life makes you tap into it, but it's not like you develop it. You know, it's, it's sort of like the, it's interesting you say that I've got two kids under two, so I'm seeing literally yes. this stuff from the beginning. And when my kid falls, uh, the difference in the message that I give him between are you OK versus you're OK is massive. And mm. I see a lot of parents say to their kid, oh, are you OK? And you feel the anxiety and the tension within the parent and that transfers to the kid. But to your point, we have this ability inside of us to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off. And maybe we have a bruise or a cut or a boo-boo or whatever it is. Um, and I, I see with my son and people watch my son, he'll like bump into a wall and he just will keep going. And of course he'll cry sometimes because they want attention and there's a lot that goes into that. But to your point about it being inside of us, I think we are designed to survive and we have that ability to persevere. Um, the passion piece of Duckworth's grid is interesting, um, and I think that's a part that also gets lost in the dialogue a lot, um, is the notion of passion and perseverance. Um, but then the team grid aspect for me, like I see really gritty basketball players 
that do what's called hero ball. So hero ball in, in basketball is when they're just going to try to do it themselves. They're down 10, and then they're like, you know what, F it. I'm just going to go at this and try to make plays. And you see losing teams do that all the time, whereas you see great basketball teams when they're struggling or the momentum, and I use air quotes because no one can see us, uh, when, when they're struggling, they – um, great teams will make plays for each other and they will have resolve in the team. So I like to use an acronym, great resolve in team, right? The resolve in one another when we're struggling. And to your point about Duckworth, she focuses mostly on the individual, uh, in the military, in the business, in, in, in academics. So the, the, the team aspect is something I'm curious and I would love to sure. hear you unpack that a little bit with me as well. Sure, well, when, when Andrew and I were talking, I actually brought up the idea of team grit to her and I said you know you should write that as your next book and and uh, she said well maybe you should write that because I told her what I believe team grit is all about and it's all about connection team grit is all about love let me give you an example I was with a college basketball program last year midway through the season went there to speak to them again I normally don't do that I normally will not speak during the season only in the beginning why why, I, why is that I'm just curious because training camp is really where you set the groundwork and you create the framework and you set the principles and these ideas that I think as you move along the season, it's too hard to then integrate the principles that I'm going to share at that time. I think a lot of stuff's already been created. You've already got a lot of clutter, a lot of mess. The time to really do it is during training camp before the season. I think, I think, I think that speaks to sort of the challenges that psychology has had, which is come see me when you're sick and, and we'll get you better versus the idea of building a roof before it rains and, and really being the, the, the business of roof building. And I think a lot of psychology is changing to focus more on like, Hey, what do you do when you're really good? Or let's, let's yeah. work on you when you have clarity. Cause when you are stuck and you have clutter, it's, it's really hard to do, to do work. It is. It's like UCLA football. I spoke to UCLA football, shared these principles. They're having an up and down season, but all the way they continue to reinforce these principles through their losses. They come back with a win. They are embodying these principles we talked about. Again, they're not having the greatest season, but they're living them. And if I would come in halfway and try to share it, I think they're already in many ways long gone about the season. I have found, again, I could be wrong, but I have found that the most success I've had is to share the principles up front. It's not a motivational talk. I'm not coming there midway season to motivate you, right? Because motivation doesn't last. I want to give you the principles that allow you to know what's going to have, what's going to help you have a great season, what's going to help you have success. And then if you can reinforce these principles, and I would say, write this down, create this framework, and then look at it throughout the year. Look at it throughout the season revisit it. This is not just for today because the season's just started. You guys are energized right now. This is to look at when you go throughout the season. And so back to Team Grid, I was speaking to this team midway through the season because I was up there for football and said, okay, I'll, uh, you know, I'd like to come by and, and say a few words to the basketball team because I was watching them on TV and I really liked them. I'm like, these guys are really likable, love the way they play, but they kept on losing all these close games. And I'm like, something's not right with this team. So started speaking to the team, and I said, so on a scale of 1 to 10, how connected are you as a team? How connected? Relationships, just connected. When I just say the word connected, everyone just sort of automatically knows what we're talking about. So uh, they were like 3, 4, 5. I think 5 was the highest number on a scale of 1 to 10. They had grit 
written on the walls everywhere. They had grit written on their shirts, the back of their shirts. They had grit tattoos. They had grit everywhere, and yet they weren't a gritty team. Why? Because they were not connected. You will never have commitment without connection. Connection is what breeds commitment. And so to be a committed team, you have to be a connected team. To be a gritty team, you have to be committed to each other. That it's not just about me. It's not about here ball. Now, maybe I'm going to take it to the hoop. Maybe I'm going to go in hard because you know what? I know I need to score right now for my team. And in that moment, I'm doing that. But I am committed to the people that I'm going to battle with every day and trying to battle against this other team, trying to win, and we're going to fight for each other rather than against each other. So the more connected you are, the more committed you will be. And really, those are two of the keys to having a great team. How do you build connection? Through relationships. I mean, through vulnerability, through sharing. I mean, my favorite exercises are the Triple H exercise, hero, hardship, highlight, where each person goes around and shares who the hero is. They talk about a highlight in their life, a hardship they faced. There's a team in the Australian Football League down in, down under in Australia, and they won a championship this year after 36 years, a 36-year drought. They won a championship. Great article in a magazine where they did this Triple H exercise. They read my book, You Win in the Locker Room First, that I wrote with Mike Smith. That exercise is in the book. They did it, and it's amazing because this article talks about these guys, these manly guys, right, these Australian tough guys now sharing with each other about their past and their histories and their heroes, guys being brought to tears and how they really bonded from that. Like once you know someone's story, you want to fight for that person. You want to be there for that person. Once you get to know them and who the who they are and know their story, I've never seen this fail. I mean, I, Billy Donovan, Florida, a number of years ago did it, you know, not one guy was drafted in the NBA. Not one guy. They beat Kentucky three times that year, made it to the Final Four. They truly became a connected team. I realized in that moment that team beats talent when talent isn't a team. I've seen it with Clemson football. Dabo Sweeney has done this exercise, a thing called the safe seat, where each person sits in the seat. It's a safe place to share, be vulnerable. And as each guy did that after practice, you know, they'd have a couple guys every day after practice share the walls of pride and ego. And selfishness came crumbling down. That paved the way for vulnerability, authenticity, meaningful relationships, strong connections. I personally did it with the Auburn golf team last year, just myself. First time I actually ever did it. Like I wrote about it, but I actually did it and led it. And it was so cool because one guy was brought to tears. And next thing you know, other guys started to share. Twelve guys get an email a week later from the co coach that I've, I've never had a team that loved each other more than these guys. In just one week – these are golfers, individual sport, blown away how connected they became. Again, I've never seen it fail. But again, high school, I'm a little nervous about in high school because, again, what stays in the room, which I mean, what's shared in the room must stay in the room. You wonder if they're able to do that and mature enough at the high school level. So, again, maybe you just share a defining moment in your life. You could do that exercise. You know, what made you who you are today and have someone share. But I know it works and I know it's powerful. Navy SEALs do a lot of great team building exercise. You know, Navy SEALs do a lot of great stuff. I love their work. They're, they're do, they do amazing work. And they're, it's all about creating the calming experience. But, you know, they, they do these things where you, you almost drown together in the water, right? And then you bond. Yeah. I think you don't have to do that 
to develop these great relationships. Yeah, well, it's sort of uh, old school, right? Fraternities with hazing, um, the military, which is, by the way, changing a, a lot of how they think about leadership and is constantly evolving. Uh, and at some, in some ways, is the forefront of our leadership. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts, though, because when I work with pro teams, sometimes I see the number one value that they value is security. And pro sports is so cutthroat. Uh, you know, coaches get fired. You know, Mike Smith, right? Great example, right? They get they get fired, um, and players are traded and they get cut. Um, and look, like there is, let's just use pro football as an example. There is a culture of do your job, right? There are teams that are very transactional in their nature and not necessarily transformational. So if it's about the relationship. How do you help a team where maybe their top value is actually security instead of relationships? Well, I think you couldn't be more right in terms of what you're talking about. And I think it's a challenge at the pro level because you're having guys making millions of dollars. They're working on their next contract and they don't want to share something that might hurt their contract. I'm not going to tell you about a challenge I face or an adversity I face, but I think everyone could talk about a defining moment in their life that made them who they are. I know as a coach that if we really do this work of being vulnerable and getting to know each other, we will have a stronger team. We will be better people. We will develop great relationships. This will help us all in the future. I think it's all it's how it's presented. It's, it's all how it's shared. It's driven by the leader. You know, working with the L.A. Rams this year and Sean McVay, he's been able to develop great relationships on his team and get the guys to connect with each other. Again, that doesn't happen by accident. It's the leader that drives the process. So you have to be a leader first and foremost that is someone who can do this and cultivate this. But if you are and you do, you're going to see amazing rewards. But it has to be the leader that does it. It's not going to just happen by accident. So you have to create this environment where this – uh, can thrive where this could work if you just throw it out there yeah it's not going to work but um, if you invest in the root you're going to get great fruit if you ignore the root and just focus on the fruit the tree's going to die so any great team must invest in that root to be a strong team and develop a strong bond work with the titans this year as well you see those titans they're you know they're definitely a connected team this year as well and they're fighting for each other. Miami Heat worked with them last year 11 and 30 first half of the season, 30 and 11 the second half. Why? Because they were connected. They were committed. They had great relationships. So It's interesting as you I have seen cultures where yeah. they do it and 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 you see guys that have come from other cultures and now they come to a culture like the Heat where there's a lot of love and a lot of relationships. And guys are embrace that culture. They want to be part of that culture. And yeah, maybe you don't have the talent to, to beat a team like Golden State right away, but you're building a great culture and a foundation for long-term success. And I haven't worked with the Celtics, but I'm sure Brad Stevens is doing a lot of that work as well from a, a culture and relationship standpoint. Yeah, I've actually spoken to Brad Stevens before, and uh, it was amazing. I called him, and I was thinking that you know, I would ask him a bunch of questions and get a bunch of information from him. And he flipped it completely and spent an hour asking me questions about the work that I do uh, and is probably the most humble coach that I've ever met in my life. Uh, and and there's there's a reason why he had success at the college level with a with a program that wasn't expected to do what they did. And then he goes to one of the biggest, most storied franchises and has success there. It's because Brad will take a, an opinion from anyone in the room and then he will make it actionable he'll make it tangible and literally i have emails back and forth from brad where he is implementing an idea that i had and i was like why are you even 
listening to me. And it's because he is so humble in that way. I think that's his unfair advantage. Um, but really, the the thought that I okay, ha- can I can I can I just yeah. step one one second there because you hit on something I want to share. Yes. The best coaches I have found, like Brad, like Billy Donovan, these amazing coaches are so humble that they're not just you know asking me advice. They're asking a lot of people advice, and they're willing to learn from everyone so that they can be a better coach and a better leader for their team. But one final thought on connection and security. We crave connection more than security. Mm-hmm. That is something I needed to drive home. We crave relationship, connection, love more than security because it's the connection the love and the trust that actually makes us feel secure so that's why it's more powerful to build a relationship that actually leads to feeling secure yeah i think you're talking about the heart versus the head right because i think the heart craves relationships love um connection the brain or the head or whatever you want to call it often is craving keeping me safe uh, and that that craving that the the brain does is not always helpful to our performance. It's one of the reasons we have to mind that mind. We have to be able to be aware that, hey, our brain is going to tell us not to take that leap. The, the brain is going to say, hey, don't take that risk. The brain is going to tell you, don't go into that arena with 20,000 fans. You know, stay here and, and stay safe. But I think what you're talking about is the heart and something bigger than, than the brain. or It's bigger than that where we feel awe or we experience amazing next level things it often is is inside of us rather than what the brain does because the brain is is it's wired to protect us um that is the brain's number one job is just survival right look both ways before you cross the street you know don't do this don't do that but if we follow that thought or that idea we'll never actually go towards action um, so I don't know if I'm putting words into your mouth or how you think about that. Um, but that's sort of what I'm thinking about as, as I hear you talk. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, we would use different language, but, uh, but similar thoughts. It's for me, it's not the brain, but more of, um, uh, might be the ego. And again, no one could even tell me what, where the ego is and actually has anyone ever touched an ego <laughs> or, or held an ego, but it's the, it's the mind. It's the brain to me is the hardware and, it's where we activate it, where the brain actually is, is used. The brain is nothing more than a, you know, a projection computer that actually compu- allows us to see, to experience, to see a, a reality. A bunch of neurons, neurons are firing in our minds, right? Our neurons are firing, and that's how we're making sense of the world and seeing this world. If our brain's not firing synapses, what is this world? It's like the Matrix, if you really think about it. Pretty, pretty crazy when you go there. So to me, yeah, what's inside? What you nailed it is that's the soul, that's the spirit, love. So that comes from inside. So the outside world is, you know, is the illusional world, the illusionary world. The inside world is really all that matters. Nurture the inside, that love. And because we create our world inside out from the inside, our soul creates our experience on the outside. I will say I do struggle, though, sometimes, especially I see it at the college and pro level. I see it some at the high school level. There is transactional leadership that yes. has been successful. Um, and I, like I short see, term, though, short term. Yeah, but like, all right, the Patriots, like, let's use the Patriots as an example. Um, And I'm not inside the Patriots, and maybe you have spent time with the Patriots, so prove me wrong. But I've talked to head coaches who have worked uh, alongside Bill Belichick and have been in that um, sort of that coaching tree. And 
you know, the notion of do your job and, you know, run this route and be here and do this and do that really well is a different message than, let's say, a Pete Carroll who's saying, I want to develop the human. Um, or even Jason Garrett with the Dallas Cowboys. Who, I want to I want to transform. I want to develop relationships. I want to cultivate relationships. And maybe I'm just looking at it from the outside in. But yeah, yeah, I think yeah. Um, I think you know you make a good point. But I, it's it's both actually. You know, you're able to do both. It's positive leaders are demanding, but they're not demeaning. And so we are demanding. We are pursuing excellence. Seahawks are about doing your job. Seahawks are about run this route. They're all about that. But they have a transformational aspect as well. So there's there's two elements to it. There's a framework that includes both. But Bill Belichick, you go a little bit closer. He has a good, a great relationship with a bunch of his players. We don't see it from the outside, but I guarantee, and I've never been inside there, but I guarantee he develops relationships with his players, and they want to play hard for him. If you were watching that Super Bowl, all I heard were, love you, man, love you, bro. Hey, let's do it for your mom, Tom. Let's do it for your mom. Chris Hogan, who I know, a receiver there, I mean, talked about the relationships they had with each other. So they did have connection. They did have grit. And that's fostered by the coaching staff. You saw the coaches hug each other, love each other. They've worked together for a long time. The players. So, yes, maybe some feel like it's transactional and in some capacity, but I guarantee there's a lot of love going on that we're not seeing, no doubt, and that's why they're successful. So, again, I thought about that, too, a few years ago, but then I started to study it, analyze it a little bit more, and I saw a coach that actually fosters great relationships with his players, guys who loved each other, and then guys who fought together to come back and win. That wouldn't have happened if they didn't have those relationships. And, and as you said that, I actually have a video where after he wins the Super Bowl, he goes right up to Julian Edelman, his wide receiver, yep. and says, I love you, man. And Edelman saying, I love you, man. And there's a reason why guys stay with the Patriots. There's a reason why people come back to the Patriots. And obviously winning, right? Any athlete loves to win. But I think you're right. And I also think there's clarity in communication and authenticity. And, you know, I think with, with what you get from Bill is, you know, what he shows the media is what he wants to show the media. And he's not going to, he's not going to show everything to the media because the media is not serving him. And he knows that they're not, they're not there to serve them. They're there to do their job, which is very different than his job. Um, so I think what you said makes a lot of sense. He knows the media wants to sabotage them. And so that's why he goes up there like a drone and acts that way. But he's very animated with his players. He's not like that. People think he is, and that's why they don't understand the success he has. And you've been around some of the greatest coaches. You just rattled them off. Billy Donovan, who's now coaching in the NBA, but built you know, an amazing program at Florida, which was a football school before he got there. Dabo is, is obvious, you know, national champion, uh, and then competing for one this year at, at a school like Clemson. Uh, Dave Roberts with the Los Angeles Dodgers, Buzz Williams. I, the list goes on and on. What are the commonalities between those people? And then also, what are the differences that you see? Because I think... One of the issues I have with the grit talk is it's just grit. Like, you know, just do grit. And I think, A, there's a time to quit. Um, like, if we look at all of our trajectories, we quit something to become something. Um, so I don't think it's just grit. Um, and I think gratitude plus grit is, is a really cool thing to look at. Um, so I never think there's one answer. Um, so I'm curious what the similarities between those great leaders are. But also maybe what, can you walk us through some of their differences? Well, 
I dropped out of law school after a year and a half. So, you know, as you say, you have to drop out of something or quit something to become something else. Left law school after a year and a half. Like, this is not for me. I mean, went through all the hard work and then just walked out. And so I'm an example of sometimes you do have to quit something. When do you keep going? When you know that you want to be great at it. When you know that you want to be the best in the world at it and you'll do whatever it takes and however long it takes to be successful, that's when you stick with it. So I have found that the great coaches, the one great example and the one great characteristic they all have is that they want to be great coaches, that they want to help build great teams. They're humble. They're hungry. They're always learning, growing, and improving. They all provide both love and accountability. They really spend the time to develop the relationship with their team. They love their team. Their players feel that love, but they also are tough. They hold them accountable to the standards, to the culture, the principles, and the values. You know, Dave Roberts has done it really great. I've also seen Dabble Sweeney over the last six years. What he does, he's incredible at it. I mean, I think he's the best I've ever seen at it, both love and accountability. Buzz Williams, you talked about him. I, I mean, think about how quick he's turned around Virginia Tech and his leadership. He loves tough instead of tough love. So his players know he loves them. So he earns the right to challenge and push them to help them be their best. Now, how are they different? That's hard to say because each person is just different in their own way with their own personalities. And so they all have different and unique personalities. I feel you know, very honored and blessed to be able to get to know all of them and work with all of them. And Clint Hurdle, Clint Hurdle is a giant of a man. He's got a great personality. I and mean, everyone just has so many uh, differences to them as, as people. So it's, they all, I believe, have similar characteristics. But that goes to the fact that you have to lead the way you are the way you, who, who you are, you have to leave from who you are. You can't be someone else. That's why when people leave Bill Belichick and they try to lead like Bill Belichick, no, he can get away with it because he's Bill Belichick. I look at Bill O'Brien. I look at a uh, Bill Belichick. I look at a Dabo Sweeney. Dabo can get in your face and yell at you, but he's so likable and you know he loves you so he can get away with it. But another guy can get in your face and yell at you, but he's just a jerk because he, he you don't feel his love and he's not very likable. So you have to find the right leadership style for you that works for you. Mike Smith is a completely different kind of leader. He's a listener, and he will listen to everything his players are saying and put them in the best positions, and they feel so loyal to him, and that's why they always play hard for him. Even when they were having bad seasons over the last two years for the Falcons. By the way, he had no draft picks left. He had no pass rush and no, defense, and, and no offensive line. They're all injured. Everyone wants to blame him. Look at the numbers. Look who he had. Look what was happening. I was talking to Jay Cutler. Jay Cutler said we were watching tape, and you can tell they did not have NFL-ready linebackers playing. But you can tell that they were a good coach. They were really well coached. They just didn't have any talent at that point. I mean, it was it was amazing. Everyone in the league knew, but the outside world was like, "Oh, Mike Smith's a horrible coach now." Yeah, he only had the best record in five years, except for Bill Belichick. Out of all the coaches in the NFL, he had the winningest record besides Bill Belichick. So. Uh, he's a great listener. He's someone who is always getting the feedback of his team. You said Brad Stevens, same way. Sean McVay, hey, what are you seeing out there? Tell me what you're seeing. What do you think we should do here? Always picking his guy's brain. So you know what? They now feel part of it. I remember I asked Brad Stevens, Brad, do guys want to have a relationship with their coach in the NBA? Because a lot of the old school coaches say no. They just, they're all about their money. He goes, no, they want to have a relationship. I said, I thought so. That's just an excuse for the older coaches to not make the time to develop a relationship or to continue to coach the way they coached in the past. The old school model doesn't work anymore. We're dealing with millennials now. 
and the new generation, and it's about investing in relationships. They want to know that you care. Yes, they're making a lot of money, but at the core, they want to be engaged. They want to be a part of the process. They want to have their say. That's what Brad does. That's what Sean McVay does. That's what Mike Smith does. That's what the new coaches who understand this are understanding. I heard um, I heard the coach of uh, the Giants, the New York, you know, the New York Giants. McAdoo. You know, McAdoo. Yeah, I heard him the other day. I don't know him, but I was alarmed when I saw on TV that he said they're collecting a paycheck. They better they sh- they need to show up and, and play football. Well, the best don't play for a paycheck. They don't play for a paycheck. They play for a bigger purpose. They play to pursue excellence. They play for their teammates. It's not about the paychecks. The great ones have never been about the paychecks. So for him to say that shows he doesn't really get the motivation that's driving these guys. All right, there's a million things in my mind right now, but the, I'll, I'll work backwards. So I worked with Maryland's football team, and – I was blown away when when you go into a football locker room, how many guys are there for the scholarship and how many then are there to go and get money to play in the NFL compared to a sport like basketball, which has similar demographics. People come from similar backgrounds. Um, the conversations I would have with basketball players were different than the football players, with the exception of some of the football players on the team that truly were passionate about the game and about studying it and learning it. So I think to your point, you can build an NFL roster of guys who are there for the paycheck. You just won't have a very good team. No. Um, so, so that's the first thought. The second thought, a lot of the coaches you're mentioning would be classified as new school But there also are guys like Tom Izzo, who I think of at Michigan State, who the outside world sees Tom act like a maniac on the sidelines. Or Coach K, people don't realize Coach K is really tough on his guys. Um, But what those guys do is they spend time building the connection with their guys off the floor. Um, So I've worked for an NBA team at the NBA Combine where I interview players, um, and they come in, and so I'll ask them about their experience in college. And the Michigan State guys all love Tom Izzo. Love him because they know he will be there for them no matter what. I spent time with Coach Calipari and Coach Cal. They love Cal and Cal loves them. And and so none of these guys are perfect. None of us are perfect. We all have moments of imperfection. I think that's an issue we have in our society right now is we put, we put our, our leaders or our heroes on pedestals and the reality is they're still human. So, yes, they can be heroes, but they're still human. And so there's going to be imperfections in them. But the great leaders, I think, to your point, find a way to be clear in their message, authentic. And whatever that love looks like, it can show its way in a lot of different it should show itself in a lot of different ways. Some of them, it might be one-on-ones in a closed room. Others, it might be taking the time to watch film with them. Others, it might be having barbecues at their house. It, it doesn't. It, it can show itself in a lot of different ways, but when they're real and authentic, that's when they're at their best. And to your point, when they can reach people, and you said a word earlier that struck me, motivation. So I got the sense from you that you what what how do you feel when people say you're a motivational speaker like how does that how does that speak to you resonate to you if i said john gordon's a motivational speaker <laughs> right. how, how do you feel about that well first and foremost calipari is amazing and people don't really understand the kind of great leader he is have had many conversations with him and a connector loves, right a connector he wants connector to help and, people and he's all about relationships yeah. the guy is all about relationships and that's why his players love him so go back to motivation relationships are what drive real motivation as a coach okay it's not about motivating just to go out there and motivate it's about the relationships that drive motivation so when people call me a motivational speaker yeah i i hate that term actually i don't like it at all it's one of the worst terms you could ever 
things you can ever call me. To me, it's about inspiration, different than motivation. It's about principles for success. It's about sharing truth with people so they can understand this truth that allows them to perform at their highest level. I do not want to be a sports psychologist. I do not want to be um, a, a mental coach. I incorporate that into my work. But for me, it's more about leadership. It's about leadership. It's about building great teams. And it's about the optimism and the positivity to do it. But all these other elements come into it and come to play. So I move in those spaces. But yeah, I really want to be known more for leadership than I do as a motivational speaker. And since you brought up sports psychology and before we turn on the mics, you know, you mentioned you tweeted out something in regard to sports psychology. Um, I would love to just get your thoughts on, <laughs> on that idea and that concept. I have a master's in sports psychology, so, you know, I went to school for it. Um, so I would just love to get your thoughts and, and, and why is it that you don't want to be a sports psychologist or a mental coach? And just, you know, what are your thoughts on, on the field of sports psychology? Well, first and foremost, I think that sports psychologists and mental coaches are amazing people. I think that they really care about the people that they want to help. I believe that they want to do great work and they have such a, a caring heart and that's what drives them. But I would argue that it's not psychology that actually helps them be successful. I would argue that it's the heart and their love for people and the relationships they have with the people that they're coaching is what actually makes the biggest impact. It's not a strategy you're teaching. It's the relationship you have and the love that they know you feel for them that actually helps them grow. I would guarantee it. And I just, Stu Stinger told me just recently that there was research that came out that said a therapist's relationship with their patient was one of the most important factors in how well that patient did. So I would argue first and foremost, that's the key. Um, the paradigm of psychology, I believe, is 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 not complete that we're teaching now, just as the emerging field of positive psychology changed the world on you know and change the paradigm of the whole industry so for years we were focused on what was wrong with people now we're focusing on the positive and so i would say why should we even study all this old the all these old theories that have no use whatsoever people say well you have to understand the past or you don't create the future well why do i have to understand a lie why do i have to understand something that doesn't really work i don't need to know that just give me the truth i don't need to know the lie i need to know the truth when i understand the truth and i understand how things really work i'll see everything else for what it is as non-useful said well we have to have someone said we have to have knowledge i said knowledge without wisdom is futile so it's about having knowledge with wisdom to help people be their best so Again, nothing uh, – I have nothing uh, – I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the field, I should say. My tweet came across as when I said that, you know, if my son wanted to be a sports psychologist, why should I have to send him to school for all those years of, of psychology? I still believe that, but if you just read the tweet, you would think that I was dismissing the entire profession and what people do. And that again, on Twitter, you can't really explain yourself fully in 140 characters and now 280. <laughs> so, so I want to make that clear that I don't think that at all. But I think that we're missing the boat because we're also so focused on the brain. Psychologists and you know are focused on the brain, but they don't understand that brain is the brain is just where the hardware. It's just where the activation happened. They don't understand the spiritual part of things and consciousness that drives it. And I think if they start to understand that more and delve into that more, that 
again, that's a whole other level of understanding that needs to be integrated. So Stu and I were talking today, actually, Stu Stinger and I were saying, I said, there needs to be like integration, not just like get it out of the way, but let's integrate. Because what psychologists do is ask great questions. They meet people where they are. And now let's help you have a greater understanding of, 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 of the challenges you're dealing with. And then let's talk about how to help you be the best you can be and help solve them. Again, focus on what you're doing right instead of wrong. Let's focus on the positive approach of things. Um, the broaden and build theory, you know, all these things, feeding that positive dog each day, all those things have great merit. But if you don't understand where negative thoughts are coming from and you don't understand that it's a spiritual battle that we're facing, then I don't really truly think you can ever help someone when you don't when you don't understand that. Because when that person goes up to bat or shoots a foul shot or is dealing with challenges in their life and doubt comes in and fear comes in and a feeling of unworthiness comes in, where do those thoughts come from? And people say yourself, how yourself. Who would ever choose to have those thoughts? Where do they really come from? And people need to understand it's a spiritual battle. Star Wars exists for a reason. People love Star Wars. People love Harry Potter. People love movies. Superheroes versus the villains. What are all these stories about? The battle of good and evil. We need to understand it's a battle of good and evil. We see it play out in the world right now with all the shootings, with all the hate, the sexual harassment, the violence, terrorism. It's a battle of good and evil. And with each, in each one of us, we have the battle within our soul of good and evil. And so evil seeks to destroy and sabotage you with fear, doubt, negative thoughts. But good says, I'm loved. I have people who love me. That my identity is not tied up in my performance, but in who I am as a person. And that I could just go out there and if I fail, I'm still loved. And the more we feed that good in the soul and not worry about the fear that seeks to sabotage us, will perform at a higher level. So I don't think psychology is teaching that, sharing that. I am right now. People are getting it. I'm going to write a book more about this to explain all of it in, in one simple paradigm and concept that hopefully people can utilize. And if they can integrate in their work, great. But again, I think when you go to psychology, they're not gonna, classes, they're not going to be talking about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I don't even know where to start to unpack all that. Um, but, but the one thing that would, I... The one, that would take like hours of conversation. Yeah, I mean, and I respect your time too much to do that. But the one thing I will say is there's more than one way to eat a Reese's. And, you know, I, I think I look I look at like uh, people like Tony Robbins who have made massive impact on, on people's lives with very little formal psychological education. And his impact is is monumental. It, it's 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 incredible. Um, and then you look at someone like, I know you've been on Michael Gervais podcast and Michael, you know, did do formal work in psychology. Uh, and for him that helped him create clarity around where he's at. You look at Mark Zuckerberg, who's at Harvard and decides to drop out and, you know, go start Facebook because that makes sense for him. And then there's, I mean, I don't know how many Harvard graduates have gone on to great success. There's a ton of them. So for me, it's we're all on this journey and how we decide to go down different paths of education um, are important. And and maybe for some people studying different paradigms, because I think everything changes and it evolves. Um, I think whenever we say that it's all science, um, you know, and, and we ignore maybe faith, um, 
we, we make a mistake. And I think when we say it's all faith and no science, we also make a mistake. So I think the blending of faith and science is really important. And too often we try to say it's this one thing or it's that thing. Um, and I think as long as we're open to learning about different things and like I'm, I'm fascinated by this conversation right now because maybe there's a learning. And, and yeah, you know, maybe some people that, like I always find people that have PhDs look down upon the people that have masters. People that have a master's degree <laughs> look down upon people that have bachelor's degrees. People that have bachelor's degrees look down upon people that have high school degrees. And if we could get away from that and focus more on is this person trying their best to learn as much as they can? I think we'd all be better off for that. Um, and, yeah, and, it, and you could have a P, and you could have a PhD, and you may have had more schooling, but does that mean you have more wisdom? Again, not necessarily. Does, does it yeah. understand what's really going on? And I love what you said about blending science and faith and so forth. Because it's all integrative. It's all together. Science is what science seeks truth. Well, guess what? Faith seeks truth as well. Faith seeks to live truth. And so science should never be God. Okay, science is meant to be the search for truth. And I believe spiritually when you are looking for truth, you will find God because God is truth. Again, I struggle in this world, and a lot of people, because a lot of people in the science world don't have a faith, they don't believe in God. Uh, to them, it's about neurology and science and but all I got to say is look at the human mind, look at the eyes, look at our bone structure. Just look at a skeleton and look at someone's structure. And you're going to say, okay, that happened by accident. And then I just had a conversation with someone about evolution. And again, there are elements to evolution that, you know, is, is you know, makes sense, right? We, we, we do evolve over time. But if you evolution can't explain why we paint, why we sculpt why there is music. Evolution is all about survival. Evolution can't explain sacrificial love. If I'm all about survival, why would I ever run in to save the life of another? It doesn't explain that. It doesn't explain morals. It doesn't explain the battle of good and evil. And so it doesn't explain why we have meaning at all. Why do we even want to strive for greatness? Why is greatness even an ideal? There should be no striving for greatness because there should be all about survival and crushing people and killing people to live and survive. There should be no painting. There should be no uh, imagination to create. We create because we were created. We paint because that creativity comes from the soul. All these things come from the soul. Psychology, actually, psyche means soul. Psychology was meant to be the study of the soul. And so if we're always so focused on the brain and the neuroscience of what's happening, which that has become people's God, then we're forgetting the soul where really everything originates. Because what happens when you die? The brain shuts off, the body goes back into the ground, and then what happens after that? The soul, though, lives on. The soul is all that exists. The soul is eternal. Life is temporary. Soul is eternal. And so, again, people say, well, that's, I don't understand that. That's what, every, that's what the tradition teaches us. That's what faith teaches us. And I think science in the future, as it seeks truth, will actually be able to prove that more and more. Because I study quantum physics. And, um, I mean, people, we're living in a holographic universe. We really are. Uh, There's a great book called The Field by Lynn McTaggart, which says that this is really one big giant energy field that we're living in. And a holographic universe means we're a projected reality. 
So the nature of reality can be suspect. We're living on a planet on a big ball of rock that's traveling around the sun 60,000 miles an hour, a great ball of fire, right? We're spinning 1,000 miles per hour, and we think our existence is logical. We're trying to create logic. It's amazing we don't fall off. You know, when you think about our existence, there's nothing logical about our existence. Everything is miraculous. So let's bring the miraculous, the spiritual, the soul. Let's bring it into psychology. Let's integrate it all for one complete understanding. Logic is a word that I hear a lot in sports and analytics, right? We're living in an analytics world right now uh, where everything's being quantified. Um, And one of the things I find about great performers are they're not always logical, right? Like it's illogical that Stephen Curry, um, who, by the way, Buzz Williams school, Virginia tech before Buzz got there, his dad, Del Curry was a legend at Virginia tech. Steph Curry goes up to Virginia tech, uh, hoping that he can go play ball there. And they say, yeah, you can walk on here. We don't have a scholarship opportunity for you. So he ends up at Davidson um, and ends up becoming a great player there. But, yep. you know, the the story of Steph Curry is is, a, is based a lot around illogic. It's not, it goes against logic, right? That this six foot two um, skinny looking guy, baby face, doesn't fit the mold of what an NBA superstar would look like. And, it's illogical for him to come across half court and believe that he's in range, right? Yeah. But he's yeah. changed the game in that now kids believe that when they come across half court, they believe that they might be in range. So I think logic uh, sometimes it, it doesn't always. Um, it's not always real. It's not it, it, logic. Sometimes hurts people because they get so focused on what's logical. They get so focused on analytics that they miss the opportunity to do something illogical. Um, so a lot of times, look, I, I, I think this paradigm's existing a lot in sports right now where you have analytics has really become super popular in, in almost every sport. And I've seen it up close and personal and it is valuable. I, I don't, I think anyone that shuns analytics is making a mistake, but there's also something to be said for illogic. Like it was illogical and maybe this is, you know, bringing up um, something different is like the Falcons. It was logic that they would win the Super Bowl last year. It was logical that Alabama would beat Clemson uh, in the, in the national championship last year. It was logical that, you know, uh, the Dodgers would win the world series. Like, Things don't always go logically, and I think when we just focus on logic, we miss another part of the story. Yeah, we. Um, I think analytics are important, but analytics are meant to be used to help you make decisions, not to make decisions for you. Mm-hmm. We need to use all these tools to help us make decisions, but let's remember our humanity and also let's leave room for miracles. Sometimes we try to control things so much, we don't leave room for miracles, and the miraculous is what you always say. Having worked with Clemson for six years, I can tell you that last drive and that touchdown was miraculous. The whole experience of it was the most spiritual, one of the most spiritual experiences I've ever had. I mean, spiritual, like being on the mountaintop, being there, I can't explain it. It was like slow motion. Uh, Dabo and I even talked about it. Uh, again, God doesn't pick one team over another, but that was the story spiritually that God was telling that day through that team, through that man, through Deshaun Watson. Look at Deshaun Watson's rise. You know, I knew he was going to be great. People said, oh, no way, I'm not, no, no way, no, no, you know, no how. No, I knew he was going to be. He's He's got this, this it factor. What is the it factor? Um, Again, it's hard to explain, but someone has it. It's it's almost like, an, again, a chosen, like they were chosen. They call 
Josh Rosen, you know, Chosen Rosen, Tim Tebow. Well, that's for another it, reason, but we don't yeah. you know, you get into that. Okay, well, any, I, I don't know about that. but <laughs> Well, because he has a Jewish background, so the Chosen one, like, uh, <laughs> that's and I know I you have a little bit of a Jewish background as well. Yeah, my mom was Jewish, and actually my biological father was Jewish. Uh, he's a psychotherapist, actually. And so um, so I'm actually 98% Ashkenazi Jew, uh, believe it or not. So, and half, uh, and half psychotherapist, but believe it or not, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but, but, uh, <laughs> he, he wasn't a very good father. So I would have to say, you know, uh, psychology is not going to make you a great dad, but, um, and again, that's, I don't have anything, uh, bad for psychologists because of my father, it's none of those issues. Again, I think that you know, again, caring heart, want to make a difference and all that good stuff. But so growing up in that, in that family, you know, yeah, chosen people. Yeah. We were, but I believe we're all chosen. I mean, I really believe every one of us is chosen. I believe we're all chosen to do great work. I believe that we going back to the greatest thing. We want to pursue greatness because uh, we were meant to be great. We were meant to do great things. We were never meant to be average. And once you understand that, I mean, again, we were made in the likeness and image of God. The Old Testament says that, the Jewish text. And so the likeness and image of God, right? What does that mean? Okay, I was, I'm here to do great things. I am one, one with the creator. And so I'm not meant to be average. And what happens is we believe the lie that we're not enough. We believe the lie from the evil side that says you're not enough. And that's the battle. Am I one? Or am I separate? And once you understand that oneness, and we're all chosen to feel that way and believe that way, then you can live life in a much different mindset and paradigm. So greatness, look, I want to get into your writing because you've got, I think, 12 books. Um, I'm looking at the book covers behind you. Um, what what allows you to um, achieve greatness in writing? Um, the book that I, I read, The Energy Bus, which I'm assuming is one of your more popular ones, is, is a great book. Um, there's, there's no way around it. It's just a great book. Um, and so, like, A, how, how did you get into that space to create greatness? And I know a little bit about your story that you wrote that book in a matter of weeks, which, which is amazing for someone who's constantly writing and thinking about what, what is something that I want to put out pen to paper, which is scary and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then B, um, what are the processes that you've used in your life or intentional routines? Cause this podcast is called intentional performers. What do you do intentionally to try to be great when it comes to the craft of writing and the craft of speaking? So intentional performers. So people are going to be like blown away when they come to this, expecting us and hear this other part of the conversation. And they're going to be like, okay, that wasn't expecting that. Well, that's, but, but that's the beauty of podcasting for me. I don't, I don't come in with a specific agenda. I'm like, all right, let's see where this goes. And, and so for me, I love podcasts cause it's not 140 characters or 280 characters. And, um, so, so I'm completely good with that. It doesn't, it, it, I've had other people be like, Oh, you need to be more focused. I'm like, yeah, but then I wouldn't enjoy it as much. So, so I'm good with everything that we've talked about. I think that, I think that that nuance is so important. And in some ways we have more nuance uh, today because we have podcasting, which is like one of the best gifts that we can have, but Twitter completely lacks nuance, which you've hit on. So, for me, it's all good. But but yeah, I want to find out how you've intentionally set your mind to write, to speak, because you are a great speaker. You are a great writer. And I want to know what are the processes that have helped you get to that point in, in your career? Well, one, Energy Bus. Yeah, I've, I've written actually 15 books now. Energy Bus was the first one I wrote and as a fable and wrote in three and a half weeks and again, going back to the miraculous, you know, again, it was just divine inspiration. The idea came to me on a walk. It was like a bolt of lightning. I went up just as 
you've heard of people painting out of the blue or a song came to them and they created that song and it winds up becoming a huge hit. That's what happened. I mean, I just sat up in my office and started writing. I was going through a, a challenging time in my life at the time and had overcome a lot, you know, of adversity and negativity. And, and so spiritually I was in this, you know, fertile place and it was a, it was, it was an incredible moment, a spiritual moment where I just wrote this book in a short amount of time. Didn't know if it was going to get published or not, but I just wrote it. And for that book to come out and get rejected by over, well, first get rejected by over 30 publishers, finally come out, no bookstores would carry it. Finally, you know, I go on this tour around the country, trying to spread the word. And now 10 years later, it has sold over a million copies in the United States, probably 1.5, 1.7 million uh, around the world, you know, is something that is unexplainable, right? It's fathom. And it's not my greatness that did it. So I'm going to say right there and then, you know, again, I just never wrote a fable before. I actually think my writing has gotten better since. That book sells yeah, more than any of my, of my books. Uh, but the way I write is that same way. I get an idea. I get a vision for it. I know I'm writing the power of a positive team next and I'll just start sitting down and writing that book around December and, you know, training camp is my favorite book I've written. Uh, I don't know if you've read that or not, but you should read it if you haven't read it. Oh, it's, 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 uh, it's 20 ways to be mentally tough in the book. It's overcoming fear to on this journey. It's about an undrafted rookie trying to make in the NFL gets injured and, he meets a coach who teaches him the winning habits that separate the best from the rest. But most importantly, he teaches him to overcome his fear and find his faith to be his best. And it's a really powerful story. I can't tell you how many people that have read it, you know, pro athletes, college athletes, and, and just people in business that have it's impacted them. Again, I wrote that in about three and a half weeks as well. That happened after leaving Falcons training camp speaking on the energy bus in 2008. And as I was going to the airport, the idea for training camp, boom, came to me. Same thing, wrote that book. So is walking, my, is walking something that you walking, but that idea happened when I was in the car on the way to the airport, I, I had a driver drive me I'm in the back seat and boom, I saw it. But then yeah, as I walk each day, I get ideas for the writing process. So I get up in the morning, I write, I then take for how walk. long, for how long were you yeah, like, I don't know. It might even be an hour, hour and a half. Depends on how it's flowing. Then I go for a walk and as I'm walking, I walk and I pray and different ideas come to me. I come back and now I write some more for maybe a couple more hours. So like by noon, I'm done all day. I just live life and go throughout my day. Then I'll check my email. If I check my email beforehand or social media, I'm done. I can't write it. It ruins me. So I got to stay all off all that. Then I'll come back to all that stuff at night before I go to bed. I'll read what I wrote. I'll edit a little bit. So now it's fresh in my mind. I'll get some new ideas. I'll actually jot them down. Sometimes type them out or write them down on a piece of paper and then get up the next morning and I start again. And the longest it's taken me to write a book is about uh, four weeks, which was the power of positive leadership. That's the longest it's taken. Again, not my greatness. It's really just, you know, I really, I, I, I give it up to God. I, I'm open. I'm like a conduit. And I really believe that the ideas just flow and I'm obedient. And then I actually sit down and do it. So I take the action to do it. And I think that's important too, every day. Probably if you don't, if you don't do it, if you get ideas and you don't take action on them. Well, then I feel like God will use someone else. So like you're getting those ideas for a reason. So if people are listening to this and you get ideas, sit down and just start writing. Just show up. Don't worry about it being great. Don't worry about being perfect. The first draft, Stephen King says, is for you. 
you write the first draft for you where you just get it all out there. The second draft is for the audience and that's where you can edit it and work on that. So, and how and about, how about spe- yeah, speaking, speaking? I was not, I was not a good speaker early on. I mean, I, I think I might've had good energy, but that's about it. Um, I just went out and did it. And my wife joked, she said, you did it when you were horrible. So I think it's great that you would just go out and do it. And I say it's taken me probably 10 years to be a good speaker now, 10 years. I, I'm not a, na- I mean, some people are just natural and uh, have natural, I think, uh, a gift for it where they can maybe speak for a couple of years and they're really good. I think it's taken me a while to get good, but I would say finally now do I understand the craft of speaking and I'm feeling more comfortable on stage because I really consider myself a writer first. And so only now am I starting to enjoy the art of speaking and sharing this message. And uh, it's weird that at this time my audiences are getting bigger and bigger now. Um, you know, I think I'm ready for the audience to share this message now more than I ever have been. But again, it's been a while. It's been a journey. And again, just, just going out there and do it every day and just getting better every time. And I watch other speakers and I learn from other speakers. I don't copy their style, but I I learn from it. And then I grow from it. You hit on something that's, that resonates with me. It's like, I do believe we have certain talent or gifts, um, that lend itself to a certain path. Uh, so for you, writing is something that you're gifted at or talented at, whereas speaking is something that comes harder to you. And so, you know, I think it's important that people understand, go toward what you're good at, go toward what you're talented at, um, start there. And then from a secondary standpoint, that doesn't mean you can't get good at that other thing. You can, but understand it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of effort. So I'm kind of reverse of you. Like speaking comes easier to me than writing. Um, so for me, the writing is I'm constantly talking to people that write to try to find out how do they do it? What's their process to learn from it so that I can potentially do it better. Um, but like I, and, and honestly the editing part, um, is what really gives me pause and hesitation and, and having the ability to go through the details and, and the nuance and the attention to detail that it takes to actually craft a sentence in a better way um, is a challenge for me. I'm good at diary of the mouth. I'm good at like writing it all down, just throwing it on paper. Um, but to your point, I think it's just doing it uh, and I have to get better at that. And then having a process of going back and saying, how can I do it better? And I just have to be more conscious of how I'm doing it and how to improve on it. Um, yeah, like my, my friend Erwin McManus. Erwin McManus is one of the greatest speakers I've ever heard. People should check him out. Erwin McManus he wrote a book called The Last Arrow, and he writes his books audibly. He actually speaks them, and he has uh, an assistant while he's sharing uh, type as he's sharing his book. And again, you can do the same. You, know, you can just have a recorder, and you record your ideas and your concepts if you're more audio, and then... From there, you can actually take what you write about. But it's just a process. Like, you don't have to worry about the nuance of the sentence. So when I'll write a newsletter every week, I'll write the newsletter. I go back and read it. And I may change a sentence here, change there, and restructure. But that only happens after I go back and look at it. You probably are focused on wanting to be perfect. And then if you're perfect is the enemy of creating something great because we want it to be perfect so we actually don't move through it or through it we think it has to be that's not how the writing works so it is a process it is uh, a journey of of just getting better with it again going back to what we're meant to do more of like yeah i'm meant to write more than speak so when i speak my goal in speaking i want people to read my books 
And I don't want them to buy it. You don't have to buy a book. Go to the library and get it. I just want them to read it because I know reading the book is where I've seen the most transformation happen. When people read my books, that's where I see the biggest impact. And so my goal is that people will read a book, benefit from it. Like I just mentioned Training Camp. Yeah, I want you to read Training Camp. I know you're going to benefit from it. I know every reader who reads that book will benefit from it. Same thing with The Carpenter. want them to read that book. That will benefit from it. So I write, and that's where my focus is. Yeah, the conviction you just had with the idea of, of I want you to read my book because I believe that it can have an impact on you speaks to probably your purpose and speaks to what you feel like you're, you're here to do. Um, yeah. I, the one word that I just want to unpack a little bit is perfectionism. Um, so uh, I've never worked with a pro athlete who says that they're not a perfectionist. Like almost right. every pro athlete I've ever worked with um, says that they're a perfectionist. And what I've come to understand and, and what I really believe in is I think that they are perfectionist when no one's watching in the lonely hours when they're working on their footwork or their craft and making sure that the attention to detail is exactly the way they want it to be. So when they say that they're a perfectionist, I think they're talking about it in that way and that they're not a perfect, like let's just use Kobe Bryant because I think it's an example that people understand. Like, like Kobe was perfectionist about his footwork. He was perfectionist about his defensive tendencies. He would watch film. You know, he was obsessed with being perfect with those things. Serena Williams, you know, same type of thing. But when they step on the court to perform, they're adaptable. And so perfectionism isn't all bad, but it's awful when we blend it, when we bleed it into our performance. That's where it can become paralyzing and crippling. And as I study the greats of the greats, I find that there is perfectionism in them, but they just do it when they're working specifically on trying to master a task. But when it's time to execute, that's where they are much more malleable and adaptable. Um, so that's something that I study and, and I, I really try to understand because if we go to a commencement speech all over the country, people will say, don't worry about being perfect. Just do, 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 do. And if you listen to a lot of the greats of the greats, they do have an aspect of neuroticism or perfectionism or self-critic that um, they use in their preparation. They just don't bring it to their performance. When they get into the, into the time to execute, that's when they um, are fearless. That's when they are confident. That's when they are you know, all in. So for me, the mindset for preparation when no one's watching and when we're working on mastery is very different than the mindset needed to execute that mastery. I love that. And I also think that when we're in the moment, we're not thinking. And when you at your, when are you at your best? When you're thinking or not thinking? When you're not thinking. So why would we want to think more? You're just in that moment. And that's what I tell athletes all the time. I tell people that all the time. Don't try to think more. Don't try to practice a strategy while you're actually performing. Because anyone who gives you a strategy that makes you think more during your competition is not smart because you are meant to just be in that moment without thinking. Do all the work beforehand, prepare, practice, and then in that moment, just go react, be you. And if you're you, miraculous things are gonna happen and bad things are gonna happen. You can't always control everything. Don't try to control. Instead of control, surrender and flow and let it happen naturally. Yeah, like, A, bad things happen. There's a great, there's a movie called Super 8, which is a science fiction movie. And it's about this monster and the monster's just freaking out because he's angry and the kid lost his father so uh, to death. So he's angry and he's acting out. And the kid meets the monster and looks him in the eye and just says to him, hey, man bad things are going to happen. And when he starts right. to realize that bad things are happening, the, the, the monster just sort of relaxes for a second, stops just acting out of anger and has acceptance. And it's amazing. Um, so so I, I love that aspect. And I also believe that the becoming piece needs to also happen. So like, I, like 
I've talked to athletes before about, oh, just be or just think or be fearless or don't worry about failure. And then like they'll say to me, all right, well, I'm just not going to go to practice or I'm just going to be and I'm just going to, you know, just focus on whatever I want to do in that moment. So I think the thinking needs to take place in those lonely hours. The thinking needs to the, the, the self-critic, the, the idea of what could I have done better, that process needs to be in the preparation. It just doesn't need to be there when we're, when we're trying to execute and perform. So that's how I've come to understand it. And, um, it's what I study and I learn and I grow. Um, the last thing. Well, one last, yeah, th- one last thing. It's, it's not before you go. It's not the critic. It's not the self-critic. The critic is not coming from self. Just remember that. You're, it looks that way, but you are not being your own critic. The critic, because no one would ever choose that. So the critic is coming from the other place, the spiritual place. Yeah, but I could, we, we could go into a rabbit hole here and I think it'll be, it would be a rabbit hole. But I, like, I think that I can choose to be self, like I can be self-critical without knocking my self-esteem. So like, like I can choose to say, I could have asked John this question and it would have been a really great question. And Brian, why didn't you ask that question? I, maybe critic is the word that, you know, is maybe if we change the word critic to feedback, like, you know, self-reflective or feedback, um, what could I have done differently? Um, okay. That's the, that's, yeah, that's good yeah, to ask. Yeah. So maybe it's just a vocabulary thing, but maybe you did, but maybe again, but did you think, did you purposely intentionally ask every question of me that you thought of initially, or did ideas come to you while we were having this conversation? hundred percent. But I also need where, to be able- where did those wait where did those ideas come from yeah. that just came to you while we were talking? Yeah, it comes from listening and being in the moment and being in the present. And I don't know exactly where thoughts come from, but I agree with you. Like, <laughs> like, like I agree that I have awful thoughts and I don't want those awful thoughts. Like, They're not I, coming from you. Yeah, like I'm married. I'm like very happily married. But if a beautiful woman walks by me, I can't. I don't, I don't, there are thoughts that come into my head that I don't want to have. Um, they're not but, from you. Yeah. So, so here's the deal. They're not yeah. from you. And that's, that's actually freeing to know. Now it doesn't give you permission to keep having them, but here's the deal. Negative thoughts are lies. And just because you have a negative thought doesn't mean you have to believe it. So you have to realize when those thoughts come in, they're not coming from you. You don't have to believe the lie. And in that moment, you can armor yourself with the truth that says, you know what? I love my wife. The truth is that's not going to happen anyway. The truth is, you know, it's natural for someone to look at that, you know, that way. The truth is I need to value that person as a human being and, and for their, for their, their soul, not for the way they look, whatever it may be. And so the negative thought comes in, but it's not coming from you. Lust and uh, pornography and thoughts of pride and anger and whatever and yeah you know they, they all come from again a spiritual place it there's the devil's called the father of lies and once you understand that there is a devil there is evil in this world the father of lies will tries to infiltrate your soul your spirit with these negative thoughts then you realize that's where they're coming from and again this is biblical but it's also truth-based which because again no one can explain to me where negative thoughts come from well i know where they come from but the great news is you don't have to listen to them you can see those lies for what they are and then you continue to move forward i call it armor yourself with the truth and when you know the truth the lies have no power over you and then that's when you can move forward with 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 greater power so again oh here's what happens by the way really quick the thoughts come in so quick from the enemy that we actually think they're coming from us so because it happens so quick conscious in our conscious, we think they're coming from us. We then actually feel bad about having those thoughts. We 
feel shameful about having them. And then we also get discouraged a lot of times from those thoughts. The enemy knows that he can't beat you himself. So what does he do? He gets you to beat yourself. And once you understand the game that that's being played, this is why, again, psychology doesn't teach this. You understand this game that's being played that he can't beat you himself. You now won't let yourself get beat. You won't allow that discouragement because you won't shame yourself for having those thoughts. You'll understand they don't come from you. And that's why encouragement's so important. And that's why we have to encourage ourselves as well on this journey. Again, that's why I always say it's a spiritual battle. But once you know how the game is played, you can win that battle. And we see it in our society. What did, the, what did, what did Russia do? with us in Facebook and social media. They would infiltrate us with all these negative comments to get us to divide as a country, knowing they can't beat us themselves. So what does the enemy do? Gets us to beat ourselves. We fight amongst ourselves and then we become easily beaten. And so the enemy will always try to get you to divide. And did you know the word anxious means divided? I did not. Yes. So anxious actually means divided. We feel divided when we are disconnected, when we're believing those lies. And that's why with truth unites, love unites. And when you feel love, that's when you're at your best. And that's why you perform at your highest level. Yeah, I think we are speaking the same language 90% of the time. Um, I think there's a there's a 10% there. Like, I agree. I, I don't think we control our thoughts and feelings. I think those are not in our control. I think our thoughts and feelings, I just, I, I am not, and maybe this will change, but I am not fully convinced on where they come from. Right. Yeah. Like for me, it's just, there's uh, only so, a show called Lucifer on Fox, but you know, <laughs> so, so like, so yeah, Fox is exactly everything is, is truth on Fox. So thoughts. So, so, so for me, it's thoughts and feelings. We don't know where they're coming from, accept them as thoughts and feelings, create space in that space. We use our self-talk. We use our dialogue to think, um, intentionally and then let that process dictate our action that that's just how i process it but i think it's very similar in in, in the sense of thoughts and feelings are not in our control they're not coming from you i would agree with that they're thoughts and feelings and then you need to be able to uh, be aware of them um however you want to diffuse or accept or be aware and then you need to be able to use the dialogue that you have within you to say all right what is truth um, and then let that dictate action. I'm, I'm, how, I'm you, on board on that. I love that. How'd you meet your wife? Oh, man. You really want to know that story. Um, there's a beach called – I'm going to say this to the world. We used to, we used to say we, we should have two versions of this story, one for uh, family and one for people that, that don't care. Uh, we met at a beach called Dewey Beach. Uh, Dewey Beach is in Delaware. Uh, it's a party beach. Uh, there are bars. People go to the bars more than they go to the beaches. Um, I met her the first night. Uh, we had a house, and we had mutual friends. She came over to the house, and uh, I, I saw her. She was wearing a green dress, and cool. I go up to her, and I say, oh, nice to meet you. I'm Brian. Um, I like your onesie, and she says to me, I'm not wearing a onesie, and I go, no, 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 your dress, it looks like a onesie. Uh, needless to say, my game at 23, 24 years old needed a lot of work. Um, <laughs> and, and so that was it. Uh, we sort of uh, 
sort of uh, went our separate ways. I actually had invited a homeless person to the party that night. I had met him on the street, invited him in. So he had a big white beard. He said he was a pony breeder. I remember that uh, specifically. And she was like, why is this homeless guy? I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm very inclusive in nature. So I was like, I don't know. He seemed like a cool guy. He's just hanging out. Um, these are just memories flooding into my, into my mind right now. Um, and then the next night I see her out and I go up to her. I'm like, hey, nice. Hey, onesie, what's up? And she goes, my name's not Lindsay. Um, and uh, <laughs> strike two, uh, go go about our night and go our separate ways. I Once again, not not great game. The next morning I wake up and we go to this bar. And um, it's a bar you go get breakfast, have champagne. It's a fun bar. Uh, lots of live music. And I like to dance when there's live music. Um, I, I like to have fun. And uh, she walks in because it was a rainy day and she wasn't on the beach. Um, and she walks in and the table next to us were her friends from high school. And so, uh, I see them and I'm talking to them and I knew them cause we went to rival high schools, but we didn't know each other. And she comes in and she sees me again. I'm like, Hey, how you doing? Uh, and let's just say by about one o'clock, I was announcing to the bar that I was going to marry her. Um, wow. and then I invited, I, how many drinks did you announce? That? There was plenty, plenty of champagne flowing. Um, and then. But- and then, and I know where you're going with this, but it, I guess it's a fun story. So then I offered to go across the street to Nick's Cheesesteak and have our first date there, and she refused that. So when we got back to Washington, D.C., I took her to a, to a nice restaurant, and the rest was history. And honestly, like, um, yeah, serendipity, fate, faith. So, uh, was, yeah, yeah. so where, where am I going with this? Okay, so my, and my question is, you ran into her three times like yeah. that. Did you? It's a small town, John. Yeah, but still, come, oh, yeah, yeah, three times like that in that way. Yeah. Did you choose to fall in love with her? Did you choose? That's like a really good question. Let me think about that and get back to you. Yeah, you're shaking your head. He's not letting me. There's no way you chose to fall in love with her. You saw her, and then you, you know, these three times you fell in love with her because you were meant to fall in love with her. She was the one for you. We often think we choose a lot of things. I'm telling you. We choose a lot less than we think. And so like when I met my wife, same thing. I remember meeting my wife and like falling in love with her very quickly. Like I look back on that. I didn't choose to fall in love with her. I just did. You felt it. And she, and she felt me and she 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 felt fell in love with me. And not right away. It took it to, for her it took a few years. But <laughs> but for me it was love at first sight. But the point is eventually she felt that way about me. And we look back on our time like we didn't have a choice. We were meant to be together. And then we see our kids and they were meant to be born from us, these kids. And so I just, I just feel like we choose a lot less than we think. Yeah. And I'm not anti uh, fate or faith. I'm still on my journey with it. So it's, it's, it's more, I think, I, think, yeah. I think we're all on a journey and I think that's, what's cool. Like I'm sharing what I believe in what's what guides me in my life. I didn't always believe these things yeah. and it's been a journey for me. So I think everyone's in a faith journey. I respect everyone's religion. I respect everyone's journey. We're all on a journey. What I'm big on is just, I like to share what I've been sharing now is I really believe this. I know this is the truth. So like I'm sharing truth and how you can incorporate that into your life and your world. That's great. But I have no doubt this is the truth. And then that truth hopefully will help you on, on your journey, wherever it takes you throughout life. Like meditation, phenomenal. All these great traditions, phenomenal. I was a Buddhist for years. I did a lot of meditation, studied the Dalai Lama. I studied neuroscience. I studied positive psychology. I studied all of it. And, and I, again, I believe you can integrate all of it. Quantum physics, uh, you can integrate Jesus, you can integrate the Old Testament, you can integrate Buddhism, you can integrate all of it into one story. And even Muslim tradition. I mean, you look, you know, again, a lot of people say, oh, it's us versus the Muslims. Well, if you look throughout history, you know, everyone, every religion traces back of, of 
uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam traces back to Abraham. Abraham is actually the father of all three relig religions, which is very fascinating. Yeah, I had a guest on here uh, who's a Muslim who's from, uh, he was living in Dallas, Texas after 9-11, and a guy, uh, he was working at a gas station, walked up to his gas station and shot him in the face. Uh, oh, my because God. Because he was Muslim. And, uh, uh. and this guy, his name's Race Bouillon, once again, uh. a great person for you to connect with. Race is yeah. an amazing human. After getting shot in the face, he had like an awakening um, and went to Mecca, went on a pilgrimage and really had an awakening about how am I serving God? Um, and, wow. and for him, he then spent time developing a relationship with the guy that shot him in the face. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. It's, I got, I just got chills thinking about race and, and spending time with race. He then went to Denmark to try to get Denmark. They were making the lethal injection medicine that Texas was using and he went to Denmark to try to fight them to stop making the medicine so that he could save this guy's life. And he, That's uh, awesome. and he actually succeeded, but then they found another way to execute the guy. Um, yeah. But he has, a, he has a letter written by that guy to him about um, the regrets that that guy has in his life and how fortunate he was to meet someone like Race. And, and Race now goes around the country speaking about his experience, about empathy and love and compassion and um, how we have to love our enemies. And um, it's just a next level conversation. All right. But if you have thoughts on that, I'll let you go. And then there's one yeah. other thing that I have to ask you about. Sure. All right. So you're wearing a hat that says culture. And for those, no one's going to see this. So it literally, uh, John is wearing a hat that says C-U-L-T-U-R-E. So it says culture. Um, Walk me through culture and how you believe it works and how can you infect culture? And, and I, I'm, I'm interested in this because if we work from the inside out, then maybe culture shouldn't impact us. Um, so unpack that for me. Like, how do you think about culture and environment? Uh, and, and what do you think of that word? It obviously means a lot to you if you're wearing a hat that says culture. Yeah, this is a Miami heat hat that, um, their exposure gave me. Uh, they're they're big on culture. Wearing a Miami Heat shirt, um, so I would say that I think it's brilliant what you just shared. That if we create inside out, see the greatest way we create culture is through clarity. You said it earlier about clarity of a leader and having a clarity about what we believe, who we are, and and what we're here to do. And so a leader's clarity is the biggest determinant in creating culture. Leadership is what ultimately drives culture and the culture we create and culture a culture of love is a powerful because love is inside out if we create a culture that's all about values and numbers and uh, words but there's no heart behind it there's no love then you're creating a culture that's outside and not inside out so we create our culture inside out from who we are on the inside we win in the locker room first through our relationships and our love and that's what creates culture and so I always say, you know, you can have the greatest mission statement in the world but it's pointless unless you have people on a mission and core values you know can be written on the wall but they're useless unless you live and breathe them every day. So what are we doing to live who we are, be who we are? And that's how we, so we are creating culture by what we think, say, and do every day. Culture is not creating us. We're creating culture. Now, in this environment, you bring someone into the environment of culture. They say patriots have a strong culture. They're going to become like that. They become in that environment. What they're really coming into is a place of clarity, of love, 
of relationships, of intention, of the values that are being lived. And that's how it impacts that person. If someone comes into a culture of dysfunction culture and a poor culture, they're also affected by that because they were infected by the dysfunction, the lack of clarity that's going on. But that person actually could step in and if that person understands they work inside out, they wouldn't allow that negative culture to have an impact on them. They would actually be able to impact the culture by who they are. And you see a guy like Deshaun Watson goes to a team and impacts the culture that way. And so a, a, a transformative leader, LeBron James, wherever he goes, could impact that culture if someone has that powerful presence. So again, that's why, yeah, so it, it happens inside out more than outside in. I'm glad you said that because it really could look like the outside's impacting the inside, but it never works outside inside. My friend Garrett Kramer, who wrote Still Power and The Path of Least Resistance, I mean, you know, incredible books, great, he's a, he, he really teaches the inside out paradigm. You know, he asks this question, like if you're driving in traffic one day and traffic is bothering you, uh, you know, you're upset. The next day you're driving in the same traffic, but you're in a good mood, listen to a song you like, and it's not bothering you now. Is it the traffic? No, it's not the traffic. It's never the traffic. It's always the state of mind. If it was the traffic, it would be 100%. It has to be 100% for it to be truth. And so it's always our state of mind because we create inside out. The outside, it looks like the outside's impacting us, but it's not the outside. It's our state of mind in the moment to that experience that we're, that we're affect that we're interacting with yeah i had chris grant on here chris grant was the general manager of the cleveland cavaliers uh assistant general manager of the atlanta hawks and now works for the san antonio spurs and i asked chris about the spurs because the spurs um are one of the organizations that is seen to have the best culture in sports um and he talked a lot about tim duncan like a transformational leader who did it with action and tim's traits that are the spurs traits are competitiveness and caring uh, so caring is about love and competitiveness is about that idea of greatness that we were talking about, like we are going to compete and care. And, and I think there's two parts to it, right? And you talk about this in the energy bus, like get the right people on the bus, right? So we have to find people that meet, meet our values. That are they competitive and are they caring? If they're not, they're probably not going to work out here. Um, and then secondly, how are we cultivating competitiveness and caring with everything that we do? Um, so, so that's a really good place to stop. This was supposed to go for 30 minutes, and I, I feel I feel awful. Um, but we got to the 30-minute mark, and I was like, all right, do I stop this? What do I do? And then I started thinking about our conversation. I was like, well, John talks a lot about connection and, and developing relationships, so I'm just going to go for it. So I just went for it. I, I can't tell you how grateful I am for, for, for myself for doing that, but also for you for not saying, hey, cut it off. We, I got to go. Uh, I know your time is immensely valuable. I want to give you a platform to promote um, – just the different things that you're up to and, and share the books. Um, I know you've got a new book out. Um, and uh, I know you have the positive, uh, uh, positive leadership Academy, uh, this power of positivity summit, which I actually watched a bunch of the videos, um, in April, they were awesome. So I know you got a lot going on. So I just want to give you a platform to share all the different ways that people can find you and, and, and how they can learn more about you and, and the impact that you're doing. Sure. No, I appreciate it. I know we were supposed to go 30 minutes, but you know what? We were having a great conversation. We were engaged in the moment. And I was thinking, you know what? Interacting with you was great, but also what we're sharing together and with each other and hopefully people listening will benefit them. So I think it's always about others first, you know, before us. So I was like, you know what? I can't, can't stop this right now. Again, this is going, let the moment go. Don't try to control it. Let it be what it's meant to be. And so I thought we went to places that some people are going to be like, wow, John, I didn't think you thought that way, but it's also great. Like I don't write a lot about these kind of things like that 
we're talking about. I'm going to write about these things in future books. I'm actually going to write a few books to share my paradigm so people can understand it more and be able to hopefully implement it. But um, yeah, right now, uh, The Power of Positive Leadership is out. That's my newest book, and it's about why and how positive leaders transform teams, organizations, and change the world. We have Positive University that we started that's free and anybody could go to positiveuniversity.com and you'll find videos with me and Dabo interviewing Dabo and you know just uh, Ken Blanchard and uh, Kerry Walsh Jennings and Inky Johnson and great leaders and uh, a lot of I'll be sharing new videos every week pretty much for free on on just different interviews insights and so forth again that's all free and then um, I'm writing the power of a positive team right now and we'll have the Power of Positive Summit. That will come about again in about March or April this year. This will be our third year doing it. Again, short videos uh, from experts talking about overcoming challenges, adversity, to try to make a difference and have an impact on the world. So really cool videos like that. And then uh, my books, just go to johngordon.com, J-O-N-Gordon.com, J-O-N-Gordon.com uh, for my various books that may resonate with you. Again, Training Camp, The Carpenter, The Energy Bus, Power of Positive Leadership, and a host of others that, the No Complaining Rule if you're dealing with a complainer, and other books like that. Awesome, and I know you're- And, and, and Twitter, Twitter at John Gordon 11 J-O-N Gordon 11 on Twitter. And John's active on Twitter, so give him a follow there. Uh, I'm Brian Levinson, my Twitter is at Brian Levinson, and then we have Instagram, intentional underscore performers, and go to our website, intentionalperformers.com. John, I can't thank you enough for letting the moment go and, and just letting us have this conversation. I look forward to many more uh, potentially with you, and I just thank you so much for sharing with a stranger. Uh, it really Thanks. means a lot to me, and I know my, my community will appreciate it as well. Strangers no more. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I get up in the morning, I write, then I go for a walk. And as I'm walking, I walk and I pray and different ideas come to me. I come back and now I write some more for maybe a couple more hours. So like by noon, I'm done. All day, I just live life and go throughout my day. Then I'll check my email. If I check my email beforehand or social media, I'm done. I can't write it. It ruins me. So I got to stay all off all that. Then I'll come back to all that stuff at night before I go to bed. I'll read what I wrote. I'll edit a little bit. So now it's fresh in my mind. I'll get some new ideas. I'll actually jot them down, sometimes type them out or write them down on a piece of paper. And then I get up the next morning and I start again. 